A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is God's word. You may be seated. Inside of the, uh, the announcement sheet, uh, you'll find a piece of paper that looks like this. On it is not only the order of worship, but also a, an outline with some blanks that you can fill in, places where you can, uh, you can take some notes for the message that we're going to be looking at this morning. Uh, the text, John chapter 20, that Stephen just read for us at the end of John's Gospel. Uh, before we pray and before we get into that, uh, that text... Uh, just a reminder that, uh, you know, there are so many things that happen in our church family that go on behind the scenes. They happen uh, a lot of times when we're not around, like on a Sunday morning or a, or a Wednesday night. And one of those recently has been uh, a lot of work with, uh, with our AV. As you know, uh, not only do we have sound and, and lighting and, and video projection and, and all these kinds of things, but we also live stream. And uh, over the last couple of weeks, about the last four, five, six weeks or so, there have been a lot of, a lot of folk that have been involved in moving the, uh, the sound room from downstairs up into the balcony up here where you can see it. And uh, it has been a, just a, a monumental task. It is, uh, it is basically being able to put all of those guys together where they can communicate with each other rather than being kind of segregated off into smaller areas. And uh, because of the, the number of folk that are live streaming, uh, right now, it's just, it's just a great move for us to be able to do all of that. And so, uh, a lot of work, pulling wires and, and, and drilling holes and plugging things and, 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 and labeling wires. I mean, it just exhausts me thinking about all of this stuff that these guys had to do. And what I think would be great for us that benefit from that is to take out one of those pink cards, just put your name on the top of it, uh, address it to the AV team. And, and thank them for the many, many, many hours that they have been up here at night doing all of this electrical moving of panels and, and all of that work uh, over the last six or seven weeks. It's been an, uh, just a, a really a lot of work on the part of about six, seven, eight guys. And so if you'll do that, and as you're leaving, if you put them in those boxes as you go outside the exit, we'll make sure that, uh, that Robert and his crew are encouraged by your words. Now, let's, uh, let's open our Bibles to John 20. Let's pray and jump into this text. Father, uh, one of the really wonderful things about the Word, and especially these Gospels, is how they stop us in our tracks when there are things about the Christ that just really jump out and, and grab us by the brain and by the heart in a way that we understand even more specifically and profoundly 
the work that He has done to bring us into your presence and to take away our fear of being in your presence and taking away our fear of death because we are in your presence. And because of all of these and so many other reasons, Father, we give you praise for the Christ. And we are grateful for the life that he lived. And so as we not only learn about him, but learn how to live as his disciples, we ask that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear in such a way that we always, always, always find our eyes fixed on the perfecter of our faith. And this we pray with all of our heart in the name of Jesus. Amen. Who from time to time, does not need a miracle in their life. The problem is, is that I think we use the words miracle and miraculous in kind of haphazard ways. Those are words that are thrown around a lot in our culture. Uh, just kind of a case in point, a year ago, April 2016, in the Huffington Post, there was an article that was written, and the title of it was, Five Miracle Foods You Actually want to eat. Five miracle foods, you, I mean that's a title that just gets my attention that you might want to eat, right? Five miracle foods that you actually want to eat. Number one, pickles. Pickles. Number two, mussels. Num yeah, some, <laughs> somebody over here. Uh, number three, watercress. It's boring, but it's miraculous. Number four, dark chocolate. Now we're getting someplace. <laughs> Number five, pumpkin seed. Now that's kind of crazy. The stuff that you pull out of a pumpkin to make a pumpkin pie, that's not miraculous in any sense or fashion, right? But the stuff you throw away, that's the stuff they say you ought to be eating. Go figure, right? But here's the thing. I, you know, the word miracle, the word miraculous, it's just sort of in the English language... It, it's just the new healthy. That's what it is. And I think it's kind of appropriate that we rethink the words miracle and miraculous in light of the culture that we live in that says a pickle is a miracle. Now, what is ironic, and maybe this sort of explains it, we live in a culture that gets a little bit embarrassed about miracles. You go up to some guy on the street and, and tell him, you know, do you believe in uh, uh, miracles? I do he's probably going to be a little bit embarrassed for you. I mean, in most of the large urban educated centers of America and really in Western culture, you go up to somebody and begin talking to them about cultures, you're going to be dismissed because it's a little bit of an embarrassment. But that's not an issue that's just uh, a part of our culture, our modern culture. I mean, if you go back to the founding of our country, Thomas Jefferson, the third president, one of the smartest men who ever lived, in fact... John F. Kennedy said one time that uh, he had collected in the early 1960s when he was living in the White House as president, he said that he had collected the greatest team of thinkers and the brightest thinkers in America since Thomas Jefferson had dined alone in the White House during his presidency. Jefferson has always been thought of as a brilliant man, but he had a problem with miracles. He had a problem with things that were considered to be supernatural. And so he took, and it's known to us today as the Thomas Jefferson Bible. It's, uh, it was retitled by him as uh, the moral life of Jesus of Nazareth. And because he was a child of the Enlightenment and had trouble with the supernatural and with miracles, he took his, his scissors and his knife, he cut out all of those in the gospel. 
And not only did he do it with his English Bible, he did it with a French Bible, and he did it with his Greek Bible. And so, uh, you know, the idea of, of trouble with the presence of miracles and the reality of miracles goes at least that far. But believe it or not, it goes even further. It even goes to the time of Jesus and to his disciples. At the, the end of John 20, that's where we find the text about Thomas and his doubting and all of the struggles with the resurrection. That's where we find that story that Stephen read for us. But at the beginning of that text, what we find is, is the resurrection. At the beginning of John 20, it's the account of Resurrection Sunday. The first morning that Jesus had been raised from the dead and is no longer dead, but is, has pushed through death to the other side as the resurrected Lord. And in that chapter, Mary Magdalene has gone early that morning because she wants to see the tomb, to be near the body of Jesus. But when she gets there, you know the story. The, the stone has been rolled back. She sticks her head inside, and, and there is no body. And she goes running to Peter and to another disciple, we think, who is John, and tells him that the Lord is resurrected. Those guys race each other back to the tomb, stick their heads in, and they see the exact same thing. And then later that night, behind closed doors, there are the disciples, minus Thomas, who are together, and they're praying, and they're doing what, whatever it is that they're doing on that night, and Jesus appears. And when Thomas joins them, they basically say, yes, we have seen the resurrected Lord. And when Thomas hears about it, he says in verse 25, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now, I don't believe that Thomas's problem is doubt in the sense of all of a sudden becoming an atheist. I think the doubt is about confusion. It's about aligning all of the, the, the lines and making sure all the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed when it comes to having faith. This is the fellow that just a couple of chapters earlier in John chapter 11 said, you know what, he's the Christ and we're going to Jerusalem and there are people there that want to kill him. Let's go with him so that we may die with him. He is committed to the Christ. Not only do we find that account in John 11, but what else happens in John 11? With his own eyes, he's there in Bethany as they get towards Jerusalem, and he sees for himself that, that Lazarus, somebody that he knows well, and he knows is one of Jesus' best friends, is raised from the dead. And it's the confusion about the identity of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus that he's struggling with. He cannot imagine a world that is now different because of the resurrection. And so a week later, after saying, you know, unless I'm able to take, uh, put my hands and in a very tangible, physical, literal way, touch those wounds, I'm not going to believe it. And so a week later, they're behind closed doors again. Here's Thomas with the disciples this time. And Jesus appears. He says, peace. And he walks up to Thomas and he says, I want you to put your fingers here and to see my hands. And I want you to reach out with your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And you know what it is that Thomas does? All of a sudden, everything lines up. The confusion is cleared. And he drops to his knees and he says, my Lord and my God. Now where our world may be a little bit embarrassed about miracles, the Bible is completely and utterly unashamed of them. The Bible is not embarrassed at all about miracles. Miracles are all over the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Think about how Christianity, you just think for a moment, 
how Christianity would be different if you take away the top three miracles in the Bible. For instance, suppose we did not have any information whatsoever about creation. That we do not know, because we've not been told, that God created it out of nothing, that God created it with these purposes, that he created us in his image. Think about what kind of a horrific life we would live if this is all we knew, that there's an existence but no meaning behind it. Or think about the Incarnation. It's the greatest mystery in the Bible. How God and man can coexist in the same body. And just think about how our knowledge of God and His character is severely limited if Jesus does not come. Or the resurrection. How would your life be different if the resurrection never happened? We didn't know anything about it. Just it, there, there was no resurrection. What that means is that nothing changes. Nothing changes. That death is still this, this, this undefeated victor over every human life. That if the resurrection is not true, then nothing changes. That's why miracles are an essential part of the Christian faith. And although we could spend probably a, a year talking about all of the miracles of Christ, I want us to look at, at the three purposes, kind of broad purposes, of the miracles. Number one, they, they, they're about restoration. And number two, they're about revelation or about revealing the Christ. And number three, you know, one of the things that happens when you see a bona fide miracle is that people are just startled. They're amazed. They're astonished. They're rattled. They're absolutely discombobulated standing in the presence of something that has that much power attached to it. So to answer the question, why the miracles? To restore Let's begin with a, a very super simple definition of a miracle. C.S. Lewis described a, a miracle as that unique event that breaks a well-established pattern. That's one of the ways that he kind of described uh, a miracle. Eric Metaxas, who is quoting Lewis in his book on miracles, uh, says, you know, Lewis writes that if for thousands of year, years a woman became pregnant only by the, the bio, uh, biological relationship with a man, if then she were to become pregnant without a man, after thousands of years of becoming pregnant with a man, that would be a miracle. For our purposes, just a simple definition. A miracle is an event in history, in natural history, that can only be explained as having been authored by God. In other words, a miracle is an event so unique that it is not just beyond the capabilities of humans, but can only be explained as a work of God. Which means that every miracle has a truth claim. That with every miracle, there is a truth claim. Miracles are not just God showing off. You know, I can do this and I can do that. Remember the old TV show, Bewitched? Uh, Samantha had, you know, those special powers, and, you know, sometimes when she would get bored, what would she do? She'd use those powers to entertain her. That is not the miracles that we find in the Bible. They are not God just showing off. The miracles in the Bible have a purpose. For example, here are miracles that have truth claims to them. Seas do not split wide open for a nation to cross on dry ground except by the miraculous power of God to protect His people. 
that the miracles reveal that God has the power to protect his people. Number two, ready to eat bread called manna does not appear on the ground day in and day out unless God delivers it to feed a multitude in the middle of nowhere. Not only does he have the power to, you know, kind of pop up over, you know, the deserts of, of South Texas and West Texas, you know, a thousand Bill Millers, but what that shows us is that God is committed to the promises of taking care of the needs of his people. The sun does not stand still for a day unless God puts the brakes on it. And that means that God is always involved in the battles that we fight. And that his people's victories are really, we experience them, but they're really his victories. In these miracles, God reveals his character, his love, his faithfulness, his power, his uniqueness, that there is no one else in all of the universe in our imagination that is as powerful and as, and as like him. And that's what these kinds of events communicate to us. But there's also in the Old Testament a vision of the future. A, a future in which God himself will come and personally straighten out the mess that the world is in. These, scriptural, uh, these scripture-created expectations became known in the time of Jesus as messianic expectations. Some of those expectations went like this, that he would be a king in the line of David, that he would come you know, from the book of Micah, that he would come from Bethlehem, which is the city of David, that he would be a king that would come with unparalleled power. And so you find in places, and specifically we'll look at Isaiah this morning, we find in Isaiah chapter 40 that the sovereign Lord comes with power and that he rules with a mighty arm. His reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. Look at Isaiah chapter 55, instead of the what? Thorn bush, the thorns will grow the juniper. And instead of the what? The briars, thorns and briars, the myrtle will come. And this will be the Lord's renown for an everlasting sign that will endure forever. Thorns and briars, where does that come from? Genesis 3, where when God is describing the world, now that sin has entered into it, what does he say about it? The world is, is, is cursed. It's going to be filled with, with thorns and, and thistles and with briars. And Isaiah is saying, we all experience that kind of a world, that kind of fallenness. That there's going to be a time which the thorn bush is going to be transformed into a juniper and the briars are going to be transformed into... A, a myrtle, that this kind of power is going to be, come into the world, and that it would not be only this kind of healing, but, but healing of individuals would be the sign of the Messiah's presence. And so you have places like John chapter 9, where Jesus is walking along, and he sees a man born blind, blind from birth, and he heals him. And people are, are just utterly amazed by this. No one has ever heard or seen or been able to do this kind of a miracle. A man born blind, for goodness sake, now has his sight. In Mark chapter 2, there is a guy that's paralyzed. He can't get around, except unless he lay on his mat, and people, his friends, four or five of them, are able to lift him up and carry him around. And you know the story in Mark 2. Jesus is teaching in Capernaum. They tear the roof off of the house to try to get this guy down to him so he can be healed, and he is healed. Jesus says to him, get up and walk. In Mark chapter 7, there's the healing of a deaf man. His hearing has been restored to him. 
In Isaiah chapter 35, be strong, do not fear, your God will come. He will, he will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. And it's not just these kinds of healings, but think about the very first uh, recorded miracle of Jesus in the Gospel of John. It's that wedding feast at Canaan where he turns water into wine. Going back to Isaiah chapter 25 in a vision of the future on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich foods for all peoples, a banquet of aged wines, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. God's great power would return and these great miracles would, that, that were being done by the Christ would reveal what it is that God is going to accomplish. And that is the end of death. I mean, you think about the coming attractions of the kingdom of God. It's the end of death. It's the end of disease. The end of disabilities. Imagine a world in which people's minds are healed. In which people's bodies have been healed. The end of disasters. None of these things exist. Because there is an incomprehensible, benevolent might coming into the world that changes everything. And so part of these miracles were not only to, to express God's future, but also to reveal the Messiah. And one of the ways that the Gospels refer to uh, a miracle, especially in John's Gospel, is that they are a sign. I mean, why doesn't he just say a miracle? Why does he say a sign? Well, think about the, the nature of a sign. I mean, what really is a sign? A sign communicates a reality beyond that sign. For instance, you're driving down the road, you see a sign with a deer on it. What does that mean? Don't run over the deer. You're driving down the road, and all of a sudden you see a sign with a bunch of curved arrows on it. What does it mean? It means, Mark, slow down. Look for dangerous curves down the road. I mean, you're not looking for it right there at the sign. Your, your visual is not to be focused right there on the sign. It's to look at the reality down the road to which the sign points. John calls the miracles of Jesus signs. He's, he's, he's saying, do not stare at the miracle for the sake of the miracle, but to discern the reality that they point to. Jesus even had to help John the Baptist understand the signs. You know, John has been put in prison, sends a couple of his disciples they find the Christ. They say, hey, John sent us to ask you if you're the one or should we look for another. And Jesus says to the disciples to go back to John, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor, and blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. A Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus picks up on the signs. He says in John chapter 3, Rabbi, he goes to Jesus by night. And he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Peter on, on Pentecost preaches a, a, that first sermon. And in the middle of that sermon, there in Jerusalem, he says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man that was accredited by God to you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. 
These miracles that appear from Genesis to, to the maps on, on the other side of Revelation were to re- reveal a lot about God. That God, through this great power, is going to restore and He's going to bring healing. And not only that, it was these miracles revealing the very one that was going to do it, the Christ Himself. And part of the reason that He did that was to reveal Himself to others, but at another level, these miracles were to get our attention. That is, they are to rattle us. When you ask most Christians, why are there miracles in the Bible? Why did Jesus do miracles? You get a lot of responses, all of them right and all of them good. It was to help people who needed it. One of the reasons that he healed people is because here was a person that was in pain, here was a person that was in need, here was a person in grief or in sorrow or suffering, and one of the reasons that Jesus did it was to offer compassion and to show the compassion of God to that individual. He did it because he loved people. But not only that, he did it to authenticate his teaching. You remember there in Mark chapter 2 about that fellow that has been dropped down through the roof as Jesus is teaching. And he's dropped down and everybody's expecting him to say one thing and he says a completely different other kind of thing. He didn't say be healed. He says your sins are forgiven. And everybody in the room, especially those Pharisees and those religious leaders who were expecting something else, said who in the world does this guy think he is? Only God can forgive sins. Who does he think he is? And they begin to look at him and not with their their brightest faces. And Jesus, being able to discern what was going in their heart, said to them, so that you know that the Son of Man has the power to forgive, answer this question, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to stand up and take up your mat and walk, a guy that has been paralyzed for years and years and years? Well, that's a no-brainer. The easier thing to say is your sins are forgiven, right? Because nobody can prove that one way or another. I could say it all day, and there's no proof. The harder thing is to say to this guy, get up and walk, whom everybody knows is paralyzed. And Jesus says, for you to know that I can forgive, to authenticate that forgiveness, he turns and he says to the man, get up, stand up, take your mat, and walk. And it happens. So it's to show compassion. It's to authenticate his message and to authenticate him. But one that we do not often think about is that the miracles that we read about in the Bible are to rattle people's cages. Luke chapter 5. One of my favorite stories about Peter. Uh, Jesus gets into Peter's boat and tells him, you know, there's so many people out there. There, You know, I just, I don't want to get, you know, uh, crushed or surrounded. I want to be in a place where I can teach them. Let me stand in your boat. They push off a little bit, and he teaches his multitude from the shore. And he teaches, and he teaches, and he teaches. And, and, and Peter knows who he is. He knows he's an itinerant rabbi. Gladly gives him the boat. But here's the thing. Peter's been fishing all night, and he's worn out at the end of Jesus' sermon. And Jesus turns to Peter and says, Hey, did you catch any fish? The typical time that you fish in the, in the Middle East on the Sea of Galilee during the time of Jesus was at night. And Peter says, You know... Um, Maybe you ought to stick to being a rabbi. We've been out fishing all night. It is our trade. It is our business. We're pretty good at it. We know fishing. Jesus says, push out a little bit further and cast your nets out. And Peter, you know, Peter's, Peter is Peter. And he says, you know, finally, because you say so, we're going to do it. 
and they push out and they've been fishing all night. They haven't caught anything. And now this rabbi is going to tell me what to do. He just doesn't have the right attitude whatsoever. I mean, he doesn't see Jesus for who Jesus really is. And they push out and they let those nets out over the side and they start sinking and, 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 and sinking and swamping their boat because of the fish that are coming into it that are caught in their nets. They're having to yell at their friends to come and help them because they don't want the boat to sink with all the fish. They need help loading it all up. And Peter stops for a minute and he looks at Jesus and he's rattled. And he stops what he's doing and he, and he falls down before the Christ and says, Depart from me, Lord, for I am a what? Sinful man. How in the world did Peter figure out that he was a sinful man on a fishing trip? Except that there was a power that was displayed that could only be explained as being authored by God, and I'm in his presence. Another example, in Matthew chapter 11, you know, Jesus is, is teaching and there are successes and there are rejections. And he says uh, to the people there in, in northern Galilee, he says to them, Woe to you, Chorazin, and woe to you, Bethsaida. Uh, those two cities, along with Capernaum, are known as the evangelistic triangle. Uh, Capernaum, Bethsaida, and Chorazin. This is where Jesus did most of his miracles. And he says to them, woe to you. Now, when somebody says that to us, it just doesn't mean all that much. But when you're a first century Jew and you hear somebody that has the semblance and the appearance of a prophet saying, woe, your ears perk up. He says, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. You know, Jesus did a lot of miracles. Did a lot of miracles to, 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 to administer compassion to people who needed a large dose of it. To authenticate who he said he was, and to authenticate the message that he preached. But another reason that those miracles were done were to rattle us and to get our attention and to amaze us and to get us to repent because we recognize we're in the presence of God. I don't know the last time you may have read the Gospels and came across the miracles of Jesus in such a way that they just stopped you in your tracks. You know, we talk about John chapter 11 and the raising of Lazarus. Those people had never in their life imagined that it was possible, except in the general resurrection at the end, that there would ever, that in their lifetime, that they would see a man who had been dead and in the tomb for at least three days soundly and completely in their minds convinced that he is dead, see him walk out alive. Who had ever seen water turned into wine like he did? Walking on the water. You want to be impressed with walking on the water? Put on your best suit, walk out to your swimming pool, and try to walk on water. 
The miracles in the Bible, every time we read of one, should not only become this intellectual exercise that God is doing something special in the world, that God is authenticating, that God is is being compassionate, but that God is getting our attention so that our eyes are focused not on the sign, but on the one that the signs point to. And he's the one that brings about the miracle for us. The miracle is not just that that we can be saved from our sins. That's an act of love. And an act of atonement. It's, It's not that we can have a relationship with God, but that we, too, will participate in the resurrection of Jesus. And for those of us who see and and deal with the, the reality and the presence of death on a daily basis, or those of us who deal with people who struggle with mental illness and mental health wellness issues, or physical issues of with, with eyes, or ears, or tongue, or kidneys, or lungs, or bones, and cancers, and blood, and leukemia, that one day, because of the Christ, because of the Messiah, all of that will disappear, and there will not be a remembrance of it. And every time we read about one of those miracles, it should be jetting our minds forward to that time and dropping us on our knees and praising God that His power is coming to bear not only in our lives, but in the life of our brothers and sisters and in our loved ones. And that one day the world will be rid of its thorns and its thistles and its briar patches and that that the pain is gone and that the hope is realized, and and that uh, love will be pervasive in everything that we experience with each other and with God, with the Christ, with the saints. And all of that can be yours this morning. We're going to sing a song. We call it the invitation song because it's an invitation for you to make a change in your life, to, to, to understand what these miracles are pointing you to. They're pointing you to God and the possibility of a different kind of a life. And, and the way that that happens is by reversing your life and living as, with Jesus as your Lord and, and confessing that, not just saying that intellectually as sort of an academic thing, but confessing it as the most profound truth of your life, of participating in his death, burial, and resurrection by being baptized and having your sins forgiven and being adopted as a child, and and aligning your life up with the will of God from here on out. Receiving that gift of the Holy Spirit that does not leave you on your own, but equips you with with a power to make those changes that you never thought were possible on your own, and that you failed at miserably when you tried them under your own power. We're going to have a couple of shepherds down here at the front, and if that describes you this morning, what are you going to do with the miracles in the Bible? What are you going to do with a God that has that kind of might? And what are you going to do with a God who shows that kind of might in the ways that he does it to show that love and, and, and hope and, and healing 
and cleansing our reality in his kingdom. What are you going to do with that? Come down to the front and talk to these shepherds about the desire to become his child this morning as we stand and we praise God together. Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you fully trusting in his grace this hour? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb?